Ronaldo spills the beans as United's new hero emerges. A sort of mid-season review, a stinking run of form in the Bundesliga, plus much more, has joined myself, Matt Froelich, today on the One Football Podcast. As ever, is Dan Burke. Hello, Matt. How are you? I'm good. I was thinking of doing like a little... Um, fun intro where you say something friendly and a little bit offensive and then I didn't know if I could quite gauge your reaction um, and Go then on, try it, if try I it. pissed you off too much yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking if I pissed you off too much you might feel uh, betrayed and then give a, a tell-all interview to Piers Morgan about me I, I can't see that happening to be honest I think uh I think I don't think I'm big time enough for Piers Morgan. Although apparently his uh, his, his show's struggling, isn't it? That's why uh, apparently he got Ronaldo on to kind of boost the ratings a little bit. So I'm, I'm sure that's going to help. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure how Ronaldo will feel after this interview because maybe Piers Morgan set him up for a few sort of dodgy questions. Um, but one question I will have for you, Dan, is: Have you ever been annoyed that when you return home after ten years, the swimming pool still looks the same? <laughs> yeah, all the time. Bloody sick of that happening. Yeah. Bloody swimming pool. God, yeah. Every time. Yeah. Is that what he said? I didn't, I didn't see that bit um, of what he said. Yeah, yeah, that was, uh, apparently. Apparently he said something about all the, you know, the state, basically, of everything at the club. Uh, we are, mm. of course, talking about Cristiano Ronaldo's interview. I'm sure for those of you listening, you are very well aware of the goings-on in the footballing world. And Cristiano Ronaldo's 90 minutes with Piers Morgan, which I believe is coming out at some point this week. Uh, one of the highlights of which says... He's been betrayed by Manchester United. He has no respect for Ten Hag, who has no respect for him. Uh, He's tried to keep the fans on board by saying that he still loves them and they've been very supportive of him. Mm. Um, And yeah, basically said nothing changed. He says some of the cooks are still the same as when he left. Um, (laughs) Is that a bad thing? Yeah, (laughs) sort of post-Fergie. Well, yeah, I don't don't know. Do you have to fire your chef every few years? I mean, (laughs) what's... I'm not quite sure. It's not sure like, what it's like getting at. a new left back um, or something, is it? Yeah, yeah. It all, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Gary Neville's still here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's he's not making um he's not making so many friends at the club. It's all a little bit bizarre. But my big question for you, Dan, is amongst others to do with this Cristiano Ronaldo thing, is why now? Where is this sense in timing? Well, I guess he's been waiting for the the season to break for the World Cup, hasn't he? I guess that's the the thing now he's going to be away from United for six weeks. Uh, doesn't have to face the people, you know, namely Ten Hag, that he has uh, slagged off in this interview and is hoping that perhaps it might engineer a bit of a move away. I mean, I have a feeling that it's probably been agreed for a few weeks at least that they're going to try and sell Ronaldo in January. Um, you know, he's the club have kind of made no secret the fact that he's surplus to requirements really and he doesn't want to be there they don't really want him to be there I think they would like to have tried to get rid of him in the summer if possible but uh, it wasn't possible for whatever reason in the end so it's all probably geared towards a January transfer away now and Ronaldo is letting the world know that he's available and up for a move and uh, you know I'm sure United will try and facilitate that if they can because it's become a a bit of an untenable situation now where he says he doesn't respect the manager like Bit of an out of order thing to say. I think he's lost a lot of support from United fans for saying that. From what I, from what I can gather, just from you know looking at Twitter and and speaking to mates and stuff like that, they've mm. they've definitely had enough of him now. And the fact that he hasn't been playing well, you know, it's no great loss for United him leaving at this point. It just hasn't worked. It's been a a bit of a disaster in almost every possible way. You can imagine Ronaldo going back there. Um, so yeah, I think it just seems like uh, now would be the the sensible kind of breaking point for them both. Yeah, United have come out and said in the last few minutes or so, uh, they basically just acknowledge it. They said the club will consider its response after full facts have been established, which basically means we're also going to sit down midweek and watch the episode with you. Um, 
It says our focus remains on preparing for the second half of the season and continuing the momentum, belief and togetherness being built amongst the players, manager, staff and fans. Um, yeah, they're very much sort of going to wait and see how it unfolds. I, I really find it a little bit odd to think that Ronaldo would do this without the club knowing. They're saying they're sort of establishing the facts. I know that maybe they're not aware of what everyone is doing, but surely someone at the club knew that he was going to go for a tell-all interview for an hour <laughs> and a half, and it's not something that's just been filmed, you know, last Friday or something. Yeah, I mean, you would think at this day and age you would have to get the player's permission, the club's permission, sorry, to speak to a player of that profile. That's usually how clubs kind of handle their comms these days, aren't they? They can't, you can't get near a player without without the club's permission, without them knowing everything about it, and you know, in some cases, even having a press officer sitting in on interviews or or seeing the questions beforehand. You know, that's uh, that's certainly been my experience whenever I've interviewed players and things like that. But yeah. maybe Ronaldo is so, so big time that he's kind of a law unto himself, and he doesn't need to go through all that thing and. Yeah, I, I, th- I have a feeling that the you know after he after he stormed off against Spurs the other week and then had that kind of showdown talk with uh, with Ten Hag at the training ground that there was probably a little bit more to that than met the eye that talk. You know, at the time it was kind of seen as a bit of a kind of bury in the hatchet. They sat down, apologized, you know, shook hands. Let's get on with it. Let's work together. And I've got a feeling they might have actually agreed at that that meeting. Actually, this is this relationship isn't going to work out. We don't respect each other, you know, and let's just kind of put on a brave face for the next couple of weeks until until this mid-season break comes and then we can kind of get everything sorted while you're at the World Cup. And uh, yeah, I just, I just feel like maybe um, maybe the club did know that he was going to go and Piers Morgan and don't really care. And, you know, it's none of the stuff that he said has been particularly revelatory, you know, about the, the Ralph Rangnick appointment when he said that was a bit of a shambles and, you know, he said he's not, he wasn't even a real coach. That was a clip that I saw and it was like, well, yeah, Everyone knows that now, don't they? I think even United themselves would admit that that was a bit of a mistake. So, yeah, I feel like uh, none of this is really kind of like blown blown anything wide open. We always kind of knew that Ronaldo wasn't too happy there. We've known that since the summer at the very least. So it's just a case of, uh, for United now, I think, let's just get rid of him <laughs> and move on without him. Okay, so they get rid of him. And that is the million-dollar question. Where next? I've, <laughs> I, honestly, I saw the Chelsea's name being thrown around purely because of the links in the summer where I wouldn't say Chelsea in a completely different position now, but having a new manager at the helm and Todd Bowley, I know he's acting as interim sporting director, mm. um, but I think even he's acutely aware that he needs to hire someone in that role full-time. I can't see where else he'd go if not Chelsea. <laughs> and I don't think they take him at this point. Yeah. Well, the story in the summer about Chelsea was that um, that Bowley really wanted to sign him and Tuchel overruled it. And that caused a bit of friction between mm. the two of them, which ultimately led to Tuchel being sacked. So logically, that now makes you think, well, maybe if Bowley tried to, to sign him again in, in January, then, uh, then maybe Graham Potter would be... I don't want to say yes, man, but like a little bit more open to the idea, a little bit less uh, combative with his uh, boss and maybe that deal would get done. And, you know, commercially, it might be a good thing for Chelsea having Cristiano Ronaldo. They could sell loads of shirts and get all those Ronaldo fanboys on board and all that kind of thing. But I don't think it would be a good idea for Chelsea to sign him. I think it's been, (laughs) I think it's been demonstrated now that, you know, Ronaldo is just not a top level player anymore unfortunately you know it happens to everybody at some point he's 37 years old he's dipped I think he can still do a job for somebody but if Chelsea have designs on you know 
winning the Champions League this season, getting into the title race, getting into the top four even then, I think Ronaldo could could hold them back, could kind of make things worse for them really. So that wouldn't be a sensible move for me. Um, I've seen Sporting mentioned again as a possibility, which like, I don't know, it wouldn't be such a romantic mm. homecoming anymore, would it really? That The romantic homecoming was going back to United. That that hasn't worked out. I'm sure he would go to to Portugal and, and score score a few goals, but... I don't feel like I mean he'd be playing Europa League, wouldn't he? After after Christmas, if he did that, which is uh, not what he's wanted this whole yeah. time. If he's if he's still insistent on going to a club in the Champions League, I think he's going to be find that very very difficult. So yeah, he has to leave United. If Chelsea are daft enough to sign him, then I could see that happening. If not, then pff, Sporting is probably yeah a possibility. But I don't think they've been too sold on the idea of bringing him back in in recent times either. Really, so yeah. Yeah, this is what I don't understand. It feels like he's basically telling everyone I have a terrible attitude, yeah, and that I'm clearly not not a good person to have around the squad, whether he's meaning to or not. And that probably puts, you know, from all I've seen of Sporting, you've got a really good young players, a fantastic young coach in Ruben Amarim as well. It's not the kind of disruptive influence you would want. Yeah, I mean, not to be too not to be too crude about it, but the. The, the phrase that springs to mind is not he's made his bed now he's got to lie in it it's that he shat his bed and now he's got to lie in it really like it's uh, it's it's got it's got it's a very strange situation that he's kind of put himself uh, in I think but yeah yeah God who knew he'd end up as the two of the bigger idiots in a room with Piers Morgan he's really he's really managed to pull that one out of the bag yeah. unbelievable anyway don't forget you guys can also write into us um, via email. The address is podcast.onefoot.com with all your thoughts on what's happening with Cristiano Ronaldo. I know we spoke about it a few weeks ago. Someone had a full, um, who was it who had a full career plan for Lionel Messi? It was David Aslan and we have actually um, got an email from him about David this. Who wrote in David. Yeah. Do you want me to read oh, this email? Oh, we do. Oh, he's already written it to us. Yeah. Have at it. Go on, Dan. Enlighten us. Yep, not, sorry, says, David. I mustn't have checked the email <laughs> He said, having just seen the Piers Morgan exclusive interview with Cristiano Ronaldo, he says the club has betrayed him. Management doesn't want him around. Management is incompetent for hiring Ralph Rangnick and the coach doesn't respect him. He has left for the World Cup and surely there's no way he'll be returning to MUFC. My question is, is this the only way Cristiano Ronaldo could leave United with the headlines focused on United's lack of progress rather than on his clear inability to play at the top level? I think that's a very good point, actually. I think Ronaldo has, has done well to kind of frame the conversation around United's incompetency and has avoided the kind of elephant in the room in that probably part of the incompetency was bringing him back in the first place. I think that was a bad idea to begin with. You know, I think they panicked when they saw that, mm. that maybe Man City were, were going in for him and um, it just hasn't worked out. You know, they had a bad season with him last year. He cropped up with the odd sort of last minute goal in the Champions League and the odd moment like that, but really it's just not worked out at all. And I think it probably cost Ole Gunnar Solskjaer his job last season. All right, United are in a better place with Eric Ten Hag now, but I just don't see any way forward with United with Cristiano Ronaldo in the team. I just don't think it works at all. Yeah, imagine if you waited six months' time and there's a really successful end to the season for United without him in the squad. It'll make him look even worse. Yeah. It'll make him look terrible. Uh, Is there anything worse, actually? Last bit on Ronaldo, is there anything worse than him failing at the World Cup and Messi winning it. <laughs> Would that just be the nail in Ronaldo's career coffin? I mean, it shouldn't be, should it really? Like, we shouldn't be, com- we shouldn't be boiling a man's career 
down to these kind of factors, but it almost feels like that's the way that he wants his career to be remembered. He wants to be seen as this player who is the GOAT and is better than Messi overall when, you know, he's won all these things. He's won several Ballon d'Ors. He's won numerous trophies. He's got the goals record. He's had a wonderful, wonderful career. And it is a bit of a shame, even as someone who's never been his biggest fan, um, i.e. me, to see the way that his career is kind of like just ended in such, or always ended in such kind of an acrimonious way. And I just think it's, yeah, it's it's a bit unedifying, really. It's the whole thing. It's all a bit sad and a bit just, uh, like, yeah. It's the only way I can describe it, really. Bit meh. Well, yeah. as one player comes to the end of his career, another Manchester United player comes into uh, the start of his career. And actually, that's a good little way we'll kick off with our Premier League review because Alejandro Garnacho looks like the real deal to me. He looks like the absolute business. I was I was checking him up on him earlier. Um, Atletico Madrid youngster that Manchester United signed. That's one good thing they've done in the last few years. That's a good bit of youth recruitment. Um, it helped them <laughs> win the FA Youth Cup last year. Scored a brilliant late winner at Fulham. Um, is he really the the breakout of a new Ronaldo, or am I just hyping him up for absolutely no reason? Because <laughs> from what I've seen, he looks pretty decent. He does look good, yeah. It's early, it's early days, yeah. Of course, I don't think he's at the level that Ronaldo was at when he was eighteen. So I think you have to you have to say that if we're making any comparisons, really. Which you know, there's there's uh, you know, Ronaldo was a once in a generation player anyway, or twice in a generation if you include Messi, I suppose. But um, Garnacho, I, w- I wouldn't want to put too much kind of pressure or hype on his shoulders that young. But yeah, he looks very good. Um, born in Spain, but he's an Argentine youth international. Um, looks like a very mature player. You know, he has that kind of level of composure that you you don't always see with players at that age when they come through. He looks like he belongs there and he looks like he, he kind of fits in with the teammates around him and the players respect him, the other players as well. I think Ronaldo is actually a big fan of his, uh, funnily enough, and uh, the feelings mutual. I think um, Ronaldo is Garnacho's hero and uh, took his goal really well, really well against Fulham, as looks good. There was a story going around a couple of weeks ago, I can't remember what one of the... Senior pros had to have a word with him because he turned up to the to, onto the training pitch with his shoelaces untied, and they were kind of saying, you know, it's uh, it's not very professional. You need to you need to sharpen up a little bit. But yeah, he looks like a good player. I mean, you do have to be a bit wary, especially when it comes to United. I think with young players because we've seen the likes of Adnan Yanazai and uh, Federico Makeda and people like that be lauded in the past. Um, so you never really know how these careers are going to pan out, but. If I was a United fan, I'd be, I'd be excited about Garnacho. He looks like a good talent, for sure. Yeah, oh, Ravel Morrison as well. There's one. <laughs> There's one that they always talk about. Yeah. That was the big name. The big name never worked out. Um, but that victory at Fulham, the late one, does even three points off fourth with a game in hand. Would United take that heading into the break, considering everything that's gone on in the round the club and the fact they've got a new manager? Is that actually not really the worst thing to happen? Not at all, no. I mean, considering the start they made to the season was um, was pretty disastrous, those two defeats to Brighton and Brentford. Um, then they, they got back on track. You know, they've had some good results. They beat Liverpool at home, they beat Arsenal at home. Um, then to lose the, the Manchester derby in the circumstances they did was a big blow. And um, I think it's been an up and down season from United, which is to be expected with a new manager coming in who, who kind of wants to change the, the style of play quite significantly. Um, you know, they've brought in a few new players over the summer and I don't think the squad is quite finished yet, you know, in, in terms of how Ten Hag would want it. So to be in the position that they're in, I think top four is the best they can hope for domestically this year. They might offset that with uh, a cup or two and, you know, the Europa League is a possibility for them as well. But um, I think if they can finish fourth in Ten, Hag, Ten Hag's first season, that would be considered really 
decent start and uh, then they can build from there. But uh, yeah, I think getting rid of Ronaldo is going to be quite crucial to that because I just think he's like hanging around like a bit of a bad smell now, isn't he really? Unbelievable. 500k a week as well. So that'll free up some <laughs> wages for some new players coming in. Uh, one team that will take their position at the break. Uh, it, it seems a bit weird to be doing like a half-time review on the season, even though there's only 14, 15 games, I know. Mm. So it's sort of a 40th minute you've headed down for a bit of a pie to skip the queue. That's what we're doing here. Uh, it's pre-halfway break. Uh, somebody who will take their position is Arsenal, who are five points ahead of Manchester City. Um, I always love this word because a lot of pundits always use it. At what point does five points or does the distance become insurmountable? I never hear that word used at any other point in my life, apart from when discussing a title race. That's true. It's very much a football-only term, that, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, I mean, I've been saying all season that I find it very hard to imagine Arsenal getting more points than City this season. It's kind of as simple as that for me. But I'm finding it easier to imagine them getting more points than City the way things are going. Um, you know they've made a really really good start haven't they you know and I think you know Wolves away it was quite a straightforward victory for them in the end they didn't have too much to worry about and obviously Wolves have got their own problems Wolves are struggling but I feel like that's the sort of game that in previous years Arsenal might have struggled in and it's a pretty decent barometer of where they're at that with the opportunity to go five points to go at the top of the league they took it with consumer ease really you know there was no no danger of them losing that game at any point. You know, the same with the Chelsea game last week. They're, they're getting some good away wins. Uh, they're not looking like they've got that kind of lily-livered nature that we've associated with Arsenal in the past, that kind of weak will. Uh, they look strong. They look like they're up for it. I mean, it's still early days in the season, as you say. It's not even halfway through yet. Five points is a gr- is a good lead, and it's it's nice little cushion for them to go into this break. But it kind of means nothing when they haven't played City home or away yet. Now, that could mean that they'll play City home and away, beat them twice, and then there's an 11-point cushion there which they've got to fall back on. Or it could mean City win the two games and suddenly that uh, that five-point cushion is uh, is frittered away. I would fancy Arsenal to beat City in, at the Emirates for sure. You know, I think they are a more of the match for City and, and gave us a good game last season and it was a really close game. But there's going to be a lot of twists and turns in this season, I think, to go and um, the, how both teams sort of deal with the post-World Cup hangover or whatever you want to call it. It's going to be interesting mm. to see. Um, I have concerns about City, but not so much that I don't think that City aren't going to win the league at the moment. But yeah, we'll see. It's going to be interesting. Okay, so there's no... That was going to be my next question. I was going to say, what disappointed you the most about the Brentford defeat, apart from conceding an equaliser in the last minute? Uh, sorry, an equaliser? Uh, a, a winner mm. in the last minute. Was there any glaring issues that you think, right, January, when this comes around, we need to fix this? This match genuinely ruined my weekend, actually. I was, I, I'm, I'm not like someone who gets that upset by football results anymore, but this really put me in a bad mood for the whole weekend. Uh, and it was the first game of the weekend as well, which is never a particularly nice feeling. But... Um, I mean, first of all, credit to Brentford. They were absolutely superb in this game. Um, they had a game plan. They executed it really well, defended brilliantly and took the goals really well. Deserved at least two goals. Um, broke really well and, uh, you know, finished the game off and got the three points. Fair play to them. It wasn't a good performance from City's point of view at all, though. Um, very pedestrian, very flat performance. Um, Kevin De Bruyne didn't have a good game and when Kevin De Bruyne doesn't have a good game City tends to struggle which is a bit of a worry I think there was a bit of an over-reliance on him um, and Guardiola didn't really change it 
he kind of just let the game drift until the last few minutes, really. He put Julian Alvarez on to try and go for the winner in the last few minutes, took Cancelo off. And that probably led to the, the winning goal for Brentford because, you know, City threw everything forward, really, left themselves really exposed in a way that you don't often do when the game is drawn. You know, you might be a little bit more cautious in, in that respect. But I think Pep thought, you know, if we only get one point from this, it doesn't really help us. Let's go for all three. But having not brought Jack Grealish on, I thought it was a bit strange. You know, Grealish hasn't been scoring a lot of goals uh, this season or assisting a lot of goals, but he has been playing f- quite well recently. Maris as well is another one who, who probably could, could have come off the bench. And I think City have a bit of a problem in that a lot of their wide players are very similar. The players who like to cut inside onto their stronger foot, they don't have that kind of fast, tricky winger that can go around the outside and make things difficult and, and change it up. Um, a kind of a similar situation with the fullbacks. You know, they didn't spend money on a proper fullback in the summer, so Walker's been injured for a lot. Cancelo's not been great form, but Cancelo has to play all the time. And you've got like John Stones playing right back, which is good from a defensive point of view when um, you know you have a team that's going to going to press you a lot. But when Brentford are sitting behind the ball and the ball keeps dropping to John Stones in the right back position, who can't really create an awful lot in the same way that a proper right back could it kind of limits what you can do really. And just overall, it was just a bit of a, you know, Harlow didn't get any service all game really. He he set up the best chance of the second half for City, which Gundogan wasted. So yeah, it was it was frustrating. And I don't think that City are going to address those issues in the January transfer window. So this is kind of the squad that we've got for the season now, which is it's a good squad, don't get me wrong. It's the envy of most of the league, if not most of Europe. But I do think if City are intent on competing on all fronts this season, I think it's a bit of a pipe dream. I can't. I could maybe see them win, winning the league with this squad, but I think they might struggle to win the Champions League with this squad. I think they might come unstuck in the latter stages when it comes to the crunch. Well, one team actually that probably will strengthen in January as we move swiftly on is to Newcastle. Um, unbeaten in 10, which Eddie Howe loved to point out in the press conference. So they won their last five. Uh, Dan, are you on board with my claim that they are top four material and will only improve <laughs> in January? Again, that's getting easier to imagine for sure. Yeah, they they look really good. Uh, only two points behind City now. So, um, you know, they could well find themselves second in the table come the end of Boxing Day, which is a weird thing to say. that uh, You know, we've got such a long time until the next game. But yeah, they look really good. I mean, they're, they're a team that is, are, are getting results in games where um, previously, under previous managers... Um, they wouldn't have got those results. The, the weekend, the result of the weekend being a prime example of that. Um, really good goal and really solid three points. They look a good team, and you would imagine they're only going to get better. Yeah, a bit, a bit of strengthening. Um, I still think they probably need a, t- a player in perhaps every sort of department of the field. You know, a new centre back, possibly a new midfielder, and a new attacker. Um, but the players they've got are looking strong, and I think they have to be feared. I think if I was a, you know. If I'm if I'm a City fan, which I am, I'm looking over my shoulder. Um, if I'm Tottenham, Liverpool, Arsenal, United, I'm thinking these are a problem for us this season, definitely. Yeah, I was thinking at what point do they become a top seven? Like, does the top <laughs> six take applications to become a top seven, or or do you kick someone out? You kick someone out to become a top six because I'm not going to lie, I'd panic if if the Premier League said, you know what, we're going to keep calling them the top six and someone gets kicked out. <laughs> I'm worried for Spurs out of those toxic top six teams. And then also, at what point do they get an invite to the Super League? <laughs> because someone brought this this up the other day about the Super League, about the fact that the, was it like four of the original teams aren't even in the Champions League now? Mm. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, I remember when so it was the I'm big. Not quite sure. I remember when it was the big four. Um, was what the was what they used to have in the Premier League, didn't they? And then that and that was United, Arsenal, Liverpool, and Chelsea. Then when City got the money together, it became the big six, and Spurs were involved in that. And Spurs obviously had some uh, high finishes in the table under under Maurizio Pochettino. So I guess it's always been a bit transient. I guess we could call it the uh, the big seven if we wanted to. If Newcastle get involved, um, that's certainly the, the way that they would they would want to go. They would want to be part of that club. I think I often see like Newcastle fans actually on Twitter and stuff, sort of railing against big six favoritism and stuff. And it's like lads. That's exactly what your club is like wanting to be part of. That's exactly what, what the what the kind of overall aim is to be part of that elite group of clubs. Um they haven't quite sort of splashed the cash in that way yet that people thought that, you know, throwing money around like there's no tomorrow. It has it has been quite gradual and quite sensible so far. Um I wonder if there will come a point at some maybe next summer, if they will really start going big, you know, uh, where the financial play will allow them to do that. But considering they haven't spent a great deal of money and the progress they've made has been pretty remarkable, you know, a, a huge feather in Eddie Howe's cap because I wasn't sure when they appointed him whether he actually was that good of a coach, really, whether he was going to be the man to take them forward. You know, it's been about a year since the takeover and the appointment now and I wondered if he would if he'd even still be in charge at this point. And I think you have to say he's, he's really done a superb job to get them where they are. And uh, yeah, I think there's more to come from Newcastle, whether... They can keep this form going for the whole season and and uh, and finishing the top four remains to be seen. But they look the most sort of to get one of the most together teams in that group. Whereas you'd say like Chelsea, I don't know about them. I don't know if they're going to get into it. Tottenham, I don't know about them. I don't know about, about Man United. Um, the only two that I would really say a search for top four is probably Arsenal and City at the moment. I, I would actually tend to think that Newcastle are the third best team in the league. And they're thoroughly, thoroughly deserving their place where they are near the uh, near the top of the tree. And yeah, I think you're right. It's literally a year ago that they had zero wins, were bottom <laughs> of the table, and I think I think the takeover was just about to be completed, or, or it had been, or something mm. like that. Um, yeah, it's amazing what a little bit of money and some time can do. And actually, you're right; they haven't splashed the cash, and I think this is what probably makes it a little bit more not relatable because not everyone's got ridiculously rich owners, but I think makes it a little bit less ridiculous almost. Like if they'd signed absolutely everyone for hundreds of millions and they were doing good, you'd be like, yeah, well, of course. But the (laughs) fact they've done it, making smart, sensible signings makes them, you know, makes it a little bit easier to digest, I guess, for the rest of the top six who are being displaced because of those (laughs) at St. James's Park. Uh, You did mention Chelsea there very briefly as well. it's, It's surely far too early to call for Potter's head at this stage, but I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it online. Uh, where do you stand on the on the Potter debate? <laughs> it's not unexpected, really, because you know football fans are very um, have very sort of immediate demands these days, don't they? There's the lack of patience. There's a lot of knee jerk reactions going around, and Chelsea fans, probably the most sensible ones, will have known that when Potter was hired, it wasn't going to be an overnight success story necessarily. You know, he has taken over a club. I don't want to say mid-season because it was like quarter of the way through the season, if that, wasn't it really? Um, and he's inherited uh, a squad that was built by the previous manager. That is a good squad. You know, it's a bit like I would say about City. It's the envy of most of the league, that squad. It's not It's not a bad group of players. There's some talented players in there, but it's just going to take some time for them to sort of perhaps unlearn some bad habits and learn the way that Potter wants them to play. And he's gone from a club at Brighton where... 
he did well and he was given that time because there wasn't a lot of pressure or, or expectation on him really. You know, if Brighton survived relegation, um, that was kind of a decent season for them. And if they could get into the sort of top half of the table, that would be amazing. But that was about the best that they could ever really hope for. And, and that was the circumstance that Potter was working on. Suddenly he's gone to a club where the expectations are completely different, where he might not have that time. And that will be interesting to see whether he can turn things around quickly there because he's going to have to if he's going to keep that job, I think. Um, I think if Todd Bowley is sensible, he will look at the season as a bit of a write-off. You know, it was it was his choice to sack Tuckle and, and bring in Potter at that point of the season. And you can't expect miracles straight away from a new manager. And uh, I think, yeah, at least let's judge him on how they do next season. And, and who knows? They might have a successful season in some way this year. They're not going to win the, win the league title, but they might win a cup. They might have a, a decent run in the Champions League. Um, that's the best they can hope for, I think. And then you just try and get have a better summer next year, get, get, get some potters that play once, sign Pascal Gross if he wants to, or someone like that, you know, somebody he's worked with before. And then uh, and then go again next season. And if if things are still aren't looking up next season, then it's time to judge really. Um but you do you do have to wonder about Potter whether he is that elite level coach, whether it's going to be too big a step for him. At the moment it's kind of looking like that, but it is early days yet. Yeah, I guess you never really know until you give him the opportunity, right? You'll yeah. never know if he's that elite level until he takes over a club. It's just I guess most clubs don't want to be the test dummy. They'd rather know for certain when they're hiring someone like Graham Potter. Yeah. But it's the same thing with players. It works out with players. Sometimes they're absolutely brilliant when they're brought in from a, a lesser side, let's say, or a not so big a team. And sometimes they're absolutely woeful. Uh, very quickly, though, on the Premier League, we'll finish up. Um, which one of the bottom three are certainties for relegation at this point for you? <laughs> Do you know, I would say none of them, to be honest with you. I would say none of them are certainties. I'd say it's probably the most likely is Nottingham Forest. They're the club who are the newly promoted team of the three. So it's Wolves, Southampton and, and Forest isn't at the bottom three at the moment. Um, mm. You know, Forest have, uh, don't have a lot of experience of the Premier League. You know, a lot of those players uh, that they signed don't have that experience. They, it was a massive squad overhaul, which looks a bit ill-advised the way they've been playing. Steve Cooper never managed in the Premier League before now. There are question marks about about him and about those players that they've signed. But equally, I could see them getting out of it. I think Lopetegui is going to be uh, good for Wolves. I think he's a good manager and I think they've got they've got better players than their league position suggests. And um, I think he'll sort them out eventually. I don't think it's going to be an amazing season for them. I would probably bat them to finish around 14th, 15th or something like that. Southampton, I'm concerned about them a little bit just because Nathan Jones, as we talked about on the podcast last week, is you know new to the league. is It's a big step up for him. It's uh, it's a young team. Um, they've not narrowly survived relegation in recent years, but had brushes with it. And often is the case. You know, we saw with Burnley last year. Whereas if you kind of circle the drain long enough, eventually you're gonna you're gonna get sucked in. And I wonder if that could be the case with Southampton this year, but. Yeah, I think the relegation battle is actually really open. It's not like in previous years where sort of Norwich have been condemned to it from pretty early on. You know, where the writing's been on the wall for someone. I think it could be it could be quite a few teams that would uh, have to worry about that. That is the second fantastic phrase you've used today on the podcast. Circled the drain. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking that actually does make a little bit of sense. You also called Arsenal lily livered earlier. I did, I yeah. Thinking, wow. 
lily livered. That's been stuck on my head ever since. <laughs> They've circled the drain long enough to be sucked into it. There you go, Dan Burke. Brilliant. Uh, right, that's it for the Premier League. We'll move on to Serie A, though, as Napoli are the team to talk about. Uh, 15 games, 13 wins, two draws, no losses in Serie A. And they finish, well, head into the break. Um, eight points ahead of AC Milan. Uh, this is the biggest um, uh, gap from first to second in, in the top leagues in Europe. Uh, do you think they'll be the team that's most annoyed about the World Cup being played right now? Yeah, quite possibly, yeah. Um, it's uh, <laughs> it's not come at a good, team, a good time for a lot, of, a lot of teams, really. I mean, it's uh, it, it has felt for a while like it's going to be kind of two different seasons completely. And, you know, everybody's a bit worried about how injuries are going to affect the second half of the season. I think everyone would kind of like to carry on in the the vein that they're they're working at the moment. So, yeah, I think everybody kind of kind of has that concern. But um, you know, it's it's looking really good for Napoli, isn't it? What is it? Eight points clear now, and I guess the comparison with it yeah. is when when they came close to winning it under Sarri a few years ago. But the difference then was that you had like an imperious Juventus team that they were up against who who beat them to it in the end, and. That isn't the case this year. You know, you've got you've got Milan, who are the the reigning champions, who are good. You've got Inter, who are good, but neither of them kind of have that uh, that aura about them that that Juventus team did. It felt like Juventus were a bit inevitable that season, whereas it doesn't seem that that case now. So, you know, like like we said about Arsenal and City, five points in the Premier League isn't an insurmountable lead, and eight points in in Serie A isn't an insurmountable lead, but. Um, my money would be on Napoli to, to go in and win that. And I know Neapolitans probably are feeling very nervous about things now because it's been a long time since they won the Scudetto. They've had a few sort of close brushes with it and they're kind of wondering now if um, if this year is finally going to be their year. But it's looking very good for them, I think. Very good. Uh, you mentioned Juventus there. And actually, were we a little bit too quick to judge them? I was looking at their recent form. Five wins from five. By far and away, the best defence in the division. And they're now into third. Um, could we see them sort of come back and then really challenge Napoli? Or is your money definitely definitely on uh, on Spalletti's side? They could do because, I mean, on paper, Juventus have probably got the best squad in the in the in the whole of Serie A. I would say um, they've got a really strong team. You know, they've got they've got Vlahovic, who's a great goal threat up front. They they brought in Di Maria over the summer. They've got a good good defence. They've got a good midfield. Um, there's some quality players there, and, and Allegri is a good coach. You know, we knew that all along. Um, there were just times when it, it looked a bit insipid with them and a little bit flat and a bit like all the sort of um, enthusiasm had been had been sort of sucked out of them under him and. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not a Juventus expert, so I, I, I can't really say what the big change has been for them um, in recent weeks. But it does seem like he's sort of unleashed shackles a little bit and, and played a bit more free-flowing attacking football. And that has, that has kind of worked in their favour. And like you said, they've got that solid bedrock of a really good defence. So um, I don't know if I could see them getting back into the Scudetto race properly. Um, I think they are someone who Napoli should be slightly concerned about. And uh, and if they can get back into it after after the World Cup, then great because what is already probably the most interesting title race um, in Europe is uh, going to get even more interesting if they get involved too. And we obviously can't talk about Syria without talking about Jose Mourinho because he was sent <laughs> off again every time I look to the news. Mourinho's doing something. So obviously last week he you know the the mysterious sixteenth man he called out it was Rick Karsdorp. Oh yeah, Karsdorp apparently this is what I was I, I was reading had um had left the city. It sounds like he'd been <laughs> banished from Rome, yeah. uh, which was absolutely bizarre. Uh, it, he he left the city with his family, headed back to the Netherlands, I believe. 
and will remain there until he finds a new club, which at the minute looks like it will be back in in his in his native country. Um, which is just absolutely bizarre. Has Jose sort of begun the breakdown already? Do you think <laughs> this is a bit too harsh to be doing this in the in front of everybody? How long's how long's he been at Roma now? Is it is this third season or second season? Second, I think. No, yeah. it's maybe only eighteen months, right? Yeah, I can't remember when he was appointed now anyway, but I think it was... quick. Yeah. <laughs> but it's usually the third season when things go really awful and toxic from radio, isn't it? So it seems to be getting closer and closer every time now. Uh, obviously, you'll know that he, uh, he didn't last three seasons at Spurs in the end, did he? Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is the Jose way, isn't it? I, I don't think he likes losing. He doesn't like uh, when things go against him and often blames other people when things go against him. He's not that kind of manager who takes things on the chin and says, oh, yeah, Maybe I got the tactics wrong today. Maybe I got the team selection wrong. It's often, it's one of the reasons he's been so successful because he's been able to kind of like challenge his egotism into, you know, make it a kind of a strength and a force for good. Um, But when uh, he doesn't have the team who can necessarily back him up on the pitch, uh, you know, when he does have a side like Roma who are a decent enough side, you know, won the Conference League last season. That was a decent achievement for them. But, you know, they're not going to be uh, challenging for the, the the big titles in uh, in Europe or or in, in Italy anytime soon, I don't think. And I think this is kind of Mourinho almost like flailing around, almost trying to sort of like justify his existence a little bit sometimes. Um, so yeah, it's it's got it's got a bit toxic, but I don't think I think it, Roma will probably sort of let him get on with it for a, for a little while longer, and it's not going to go truly truly wrong for them anytime soon. Wow, justifying his existence. Tough words, <laughs> tough words there, Dan. Just don't forget don't forget me. That's what that's what Jose said. Yeah. <laughs> don't forget me. Uh we'll move on to the Bundesliga though. It's all come crashing down for Union Berlin. One win in the last five. We were talking a few weeks ago about how this could be the title race of all title races. Finally someone's gonna not buy off their perch. Uh, they're absolutely slap silly at the weekend. And Freiburg are now Bayern's biggest challenges, but are four points off them. Do we expect any sort of run in the back end of the season, apart from Bayern running away with it? I highly doubt it. I think Bayern have got their noses in front now, and it's it's going to be unlikely that anyone's going to properly challenge them. Obviously, Freiburg are the second team in the league now, and uh, and they've done very well. They beat, they beat Union 4-1 on Sunday. So I think uh, Union's uh, early season um, fun is kind of over now, and uh, they've going to revert to the mean which you know is probably about sixth or seventh in the table which is still very good for them um they were never really truly title contenders in that league because it's just going to be so tough to to beat Bayern over the course of a season and I think Freiburg are going to feel the same find, find it the same way um Dortmund are not involved in it so it's kind of hard to see anyone properly challenging Bayern I do think Bayer Leverkusen are going to get back into the sort of European reckoning in the second half of the season. Obviously, we've seen RB Leipzig doing pretty well as well under Marco Rosa. We've seen we've seen Eintracht Frankfurt do well under Oliver Glasnow. And I think um, since Xabi Alonso came in at Leverkusen, the results have been a little bit up and down, but they're playing well again now. They've got Moussa Diaby scoring again. So I think they could be a threat to those uh, those sort of top six, top four places in the Bundesliga. But yeah, it's uh, it's going to be Bayern's title, I think, quite comfortably in the end. 
Yeah, I think it feels like it's a similar case of what's happening in Ligue 1 as well, where you get the runaway leaders, buying the runaway leaders, mm-hmm. a PSG are quite a few points clear in Ligue 1, but the, the main challenges aren't really there. I was, I was checking the other day that Lons are five points behind PSG, and they're all very good form, right? They're, they've won five out of the last five. They're not... It sounds stupid that a team has the know-how to challenge and not to win, but they're not the ones that you'd expect to be pushing them all the way. You know, Leverkusen and Dortmund aren't there to push Bayern. Um, who, whoever it is, whether it's Nice, whether it's Lyon, whether it's Marseille, who finished second last year, they're not there to push PSG either. And it seems like, I know we're only halfway through the season, but those two title races may may have teetered out. I'm not saying they're completely <laughs> yeah. done. Although you shouldn't pay attention to those leagues because there's some great teams and there's some good fun to be had in the second half of the season. But yeah, I, I would tend to agree with your general sort of consensus on those. Um, as for the Liga as well, everyone else seems to fall off apart from the front two, which now mm-hmm. just leaves a title race of Real Madrid and Barcelona. Um, do you think in some weird way they've both then got a bit of a buffer to have a bit of a World Cup hangover and still keep the title race between them? Probably, yeah. Probably because there's no one else coming close to that, is there really? We talked about Atletico a lot in recent weeks and how they're struggling under Simeone. Um, they're not, you know, looking great. Um, and, I mean, Barcelona have got the advantage at the moment, haven't they? It's only two points over Real Madrid, but then it's uh, mm. Real Sociedad nine points behind Real Madrid in third, then Athletic Club 11 points behind Real Madrid. So that is a... That does look like a bit of an insurmountable gap already uh, that the, those those top two have, have carved out. And you know what? It's not the worst thing in the world. I think Real Madrid and Barcelona going for a title against each other, is it really? It's, uh, you know, something we've sort of grown uh, accustomed to over the years. In the past couple of years, it's been a bit of a damp squib, the La Liga title race with uh, with Real Madrid kind of strolling to it. So I think that's going to be one to, one to look forward to in the second half of the season. I think those two are going to have some, uh, some good games uh, against each other and against everyone else. Now I'm really interested for everyone to tweet in, football Dan or at Matt underscore Froelich, what else could be qualified as insurmountable? <laughs> if not a title race, then what else in your day-to-day life is insurmountable? Uh, we have a few questions to finish with, though. Two questions for you. One of them, what do you think the players are going to do during the World Cup in Qatar? If they're there, um, sorry, if they're not there. Do you reckon it's going to be quite boring around the place? There's obviously some teams who have more players uh, at the World Cup than others. Um, are you looking forward to any of these mini tours that they're doing? Or do you think they'll just be largely inactive for the next six weeks on a sort of pre-season? Yeah, it's like, well, it's like another sort of mini pre-season, isn't it? Um, with the odd little friendly thrown in to keep up some match sharpness. And I guess they're not going to be busting a gut in training necessarily, just kind of keeping the fitness levels going. Uh, I mean, I, obviously I'm not a professional footballer, so I've, I've never really understood the kind of obsession with match sharpness like how that really, can you not just get match sharp on the training pitch? Like what difference does it make whether you're playing in a match like that's, that's a friendly or it must it must make a difference. Like there must be some mm. sports science behind it, that level of intensity that really gets you up to speed with it. I guess mentally as well, it makes a difference. Like, you know, you can't really replicate the um, the mental feeling of a uh, of a competitive match, just playing friendlies or just playing, just playing like training matches and stuff like that. So yeah, I think the likes of sort of Haaland, Salah, they're going to be being put put through the paces with youth teams on the training ground just to keep fitness. Um, but they're going to have to start all over again when the season, you know, resumes. Whereas, you know, theoretically, the players that are playing at the World yeah. Cup, 
shouldn't actually be knackered when it comes to December, when the season starts again. It will be later down the line that theoretically they will pay the price for playing at that World Cup towards the end of the season. They could, you know, really start feeling it in the legs and really start feeling tired, really start picking up injuries. But um, I would imagine that that first kind of weekend back will probably just be sort of business as usual, really. Yeah, well, it's a little bit odd because actually the ones who aren't going are going to get a decent break. And the ones who are going are going to play less matches than if the season was on. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I, I agree with you what we've spoken about before, that the World Cup is obviously going to mess with the season. But obviously, not every team can get to the final. Uh, so if you go to the final at the World Cup, you're going to be between now and Boxing Day, let's say for Premier League stars, you're going to be playing seven games in the next six weeks, which is hugely less than you would normally play in that time when you consider maybe another round of the Carabao Cup, uh, a few a few Champions League games as as would normally be, uh, and all the Premier League games. If you if you get knocked out of the group stage or make it to the, the round of 16, you're playing three or four matches in the next five weeks. That's way less than a player would normally <laughs> play. Um, so actually, yeah, you never know. It could be kind of interesting. It's quite funny that the Carabao Cup draw was made um, um, Thursday night after Manchester United beat Aston Villa. And for those of you that aren't aware, Manchester City drew Liverpool, which therefore means that three days after the World Cup final, we will see the two biggest teams at the moment in England go head to head. Um, and there were obviously the stars that you mentioned before, Haaland and Salah will either be fully refreshed or way off the pace. Um, and we'll just have to sort of make our guesses as to what they've made of the World Cup break uh, mm. after that match. Uh, the final one, though, the final question I've got for you, Dan. Let's say you are a footballer. You said you have no previous experience. Uh, what would you take with you to the World Cup for entertainment? Are you going to take like one of those big portable PlayStation cases that all the players seem to have? Or are you just more of a deck of cards and a book kind of guy? <laughs> I mean, I probably would be a PlayStation guy if I was a footballer because I am in real life. But uh, th- those big, like, case things, what the hell are they? Like, are th- do they have, like, a TV inside them so you can just kind of open it up and then it's all, like, good to go? Is that how it works? I, I'm not entirely sure. I think there are cases like that, but I would assume that the hotel the players stay at have got TVs and sort of chill-out areas. So I'm assuming they would have, you know, they've got a common room with a bit of table tennis. They've got a couple of PlayStations in there. Um it would just be very, very odd. I mean, the chances of players just being allowed out to sort of see the sights are minimal at the best of times, never mind mm. in a place where it doesn't appear like there's a huge amount of space for them to go out and enjoy a bit of time in the city. Mm. Um, they'd probably be absolutely mobbed by all the fans there. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I guess that's kind of it. What else would you do? Take yeah. a, take an album with you? I'd take a, a book. I mean, do people use CDs anymore? What the hell are they? The fo- I bet, I bet modern footballers don't use don't play CDs anymore, do they? They'll all have. Uh... I don't know. I just I pictured you. Uh, I pictured you as a Walkman kind of guy, you know, taking urban hymns on your on your Walkman. <laughs> <laughs> Great well, album, did, by the way. Great album. Didn't uh, Leighton Baines used to take his guitar on England uh, trips with him because he plays guitar, doesn't he? And he, uh, he used to entertain the the troops with some renditions of Wonderwall or whatever. Um, I guess I would take some books, you know, whether that be physical or e-books or whatever. Oh, I remember yeah, someone yeah. saying that they saw Xabi uh, Alonso getting off a coach once and all the footballers had the Beats by Dre headphones and all that kind of stuff. And he had like a big book. That, he, mm. that was his that was his uh, away match entertainment. So, yeah. I'd, I'd be interested to know actually whether there are any readers in the England camp or whether they're all just uh, Call of Duty nerds. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a, that's definitely a thing. Warzone, uh, a bit of FIFA, no books lying about. There's got to be one. There's got to be at least who was it? They, there used to be a player that always used to get picked on for reading books. They always used to say he was way too smart to be a footballer. I'm trying to remember who it is now. Completely escaped my mind. Yeah. Anyway, that is all. Do you remember? Graham Lasso, was it? No. It used to, no? Oh, it might have been Graham Lasso. Might have been. That's mm. a pretty good shout. Anyway, that's all from myself and Dan this week. Uh, we will be back on Thursday or Friday, somewhere towards the end of the week, with a full breakdown of the World Cup. We'll look forward to it kicking off on Sunday. Um, but yeah, until then, you can, of course, email us the addresses podcast at onefootball.com. Get at us on Twitter, too. Um, Joel wasn't on the podcast today, but just go ahead and tweet him anyway, just to annoy him. Uh, but yeah, that's all from us. Thanks so much, Dan, for joining me. Thank you to you guys for listening or watching if you're watching on the OneFootball TV app and until next time we will see you later